Uh, thank you, Kyle and the praise team. Uh, this is my favorite time of year. I love the Christmas season. I love the songs. I love the lights. I love everything. So uh, I'll be extra happy today. So that's good. Uh, no, it is good to see everybody this morning. Uh, my name is Mike. I am one of the pastors here. Thank you again for everybody that's online. Um, if you've been with us uh, for the uh, last semester, you'll know that we are in a series called Reorder, taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's the most famous message ever given by the best teacher ever given, and in it, God is calling us to reorder everything about our lives to the truth of who Jesus is and his kingdom. But before we jump into that, um, let me ask you just to think, uh, what, what do you think, if you had to guess, what would be like the most well-known Bible verse or scripture passages out in the world today? Like church or unchurch, just Bible out there. What might be the most famous passage? We might be tempted to think uh, maybe John 3.16, right? Uh, we saw, you know, a lot of Super Bowl signs that said John 3.16 with people wearing funny hats. Um, the Super Bowl, oh, I'll get into it. Um, but you might have seen that and say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that should ever believe in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Maybe. What about Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Maybe that's it. I would, in my informal Mike's brain poll, would argue that maybe the passage that we're going to look at today is the most famous, well-known passage just from the Bible out in the world there, and it is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the reason I say that is because we've probably, if you've gone to any church or wherever you grew up, you might have heard it said time and time again at church services. You even see it like referenced in like movies and TV shows as someone's talking about the church. But the Lord's Prayer, I would argue, is the most popular passage kind of out there in uh, the world today. And whether or not you grew up in church, again, you've probably heard it. Um, in fact, I would even guess that it's probably said across the world hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of times a day, because people have memorized it, they recite it, they say it at church services. But that begs the question, is that why Jesus taught his followers, as we'll see in our passage today, to, to pray like that? Simply to memorize a few dozen words and just rattle them off, uh, kind of rote from, from your mind, as if like there's some kind of magic spell to get God's favor on our lives, or, oh, I, I know I need to pray, I need to check that box of prayer, so let me just spout off these words, and I'm sure that'll make God happy. Is that why Jesus taught his followers to pray like that? Or perhaps was it something really uh, more profound and more deep than we could possibly imagine? Something so profound and so deep that if we really believe what Jesus is going to teach us today, it would transform us from the inside out. Why did Jesus teach his followers to pray the Lord's Prayer? I like the way that uh, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, uh, author, uh, a preacher, says as far as the purpose of this prayer, not to just memorize and repeat a rote set of words, but this is what he said. He said, hey, there's two outlines that this prayer provides. First, it's an outline in how to approach God as Father and how we are to speak with him. And then secondly, it actually serves as an outline to the whole of, uh, to, of the whole Christian life. And I think, uh, for instance, right, in other words, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer of a reordered life, a reordered heart. It's not, Jesus doesn't teach us to pray to God as some kind of cosmic Santa Claus or prayer as like kind of a get out of jail free card whenever we're in a bind. Oh, help us. Or maybe that like kind of prayer that's an in case of emergency break behind glass of like, oh, there's danger. I need help. That's not how Jesus teaches us to pray. No, Jesus teaches us to pray, as we'll see, a true prayer. And what that is, it's the heart of a beloved child. 
reaching out, trusting in, and submitting to the heart of a loving father. It's the prayer of a reordered heart. Uh, so let, let's look at it together. And as you flip over to Matthew chapter 6, uh, if you haven't been there yet, starting in verse 9, uh, as you flip there, let me just say this first. In my study of this passage, there's not a line in this prayer. There's not a word in this prayer. Uh, that isn't something that I know personally I need to grow in. And so I hope as we look at it together, we can grow in this together. Uh, so um, follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 9. Jesus says this to the crowd. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. So as we dive in, we're going to see that Jesus is really going to teach us two main things. Who we pray to and what we pray for. So let's jump right in. Jesus opens up with a bang on who we pray to, starting with our Father in heaven. So let's start with that first word, actually, our. Our Father. Jesus doesn't say my Father or the Father, but our Father, together as a family, as a community. So prayer, for sure, can be a very personal and private thing. So even a few verses earlier, Jesus is going to instruct us to pray in secret, behind closed doors. But prayer is also an acknowledgement that we are not alone. We are not islands. And coming to God is coming to him as part of his wonderful, beautiful, diverse family. One of the things I love most about our CBC family is, is a celebration of our multicultural diversity and the tapestry that all our different cultures bring together. But what ties us together is that we all belong to the same family of God in Christ, one family with many cultures. And so we pray our Father together as part of God's family. But it's that next word, Father, that begins taking us deeper. Jesus could have given us any title for God here. Our Lord, our King, the great I Am, the Alpha and Omega, the Ancient of Days, our Creator, our Judge, or even just Holy God. But no, Jesus says when you and I come to God in prayer, our primary relational posture is of a child coming to a loving parent. But the word Father can be tricky. And for some of us, this might derail the prayer already because it's nearly impossible for us to hear the word father and not to think about our earthly fathers and in doing so project that relationship up onto God. Now, some of us may have had incredible fathers, godly, loving, full of strong character and integrity, and we praise God for them. But I know for many of us, that isn't the case. Many have had or have fathers who were not so great, maybe not even close. Fathers who lacked integrity, lacked compassion and care, and not someone you would want to talk to, let alone run to with your heart. And I know that there are even some in here that can't imagine their father because they weren't around. And if that's you, I am 
genuinely sorry. So you might ask, like, how could God want us to think about him like that? He doesn't. Because even our best fathers are flawed and sinful, including me. Even our best fathers on earth can't be compared to our perfect father in heaven. And it might even take supernatural faith for you and I to see and trust God like that, a perfect, good, heavenly father. A way to think about it is this. What does a good, earthly father do for a child? Well, at the minimum, I would say, you know, he, he loves, he guides, he protects, and he provides. I did that to, memorize, or to rhyme on purpose. He loves, he guides, he protects, provides. And certainly, an uh, earthly father does more than that. But Jesus is saying, beloved child, when we address God, we talk to our loving guiding, protecting, providing Heavenly Father, not like the fathers of this world, including me, limited, weak, and sin-marred, but infinite, strong, and perfect with His heart of love set upon us, our Father in heaven. And that doesn't mean that in the familiarity, we lose the reverence. God is the Almighty, holy judge over all things. He is the Alpha and Omega, the great I Am, and all the good and weighty glory names that he bears. And so that's why it's remarkable that the Almighty God's preferred way we address him is Father. Because he cares for you and me as his beloved children. So we did an entire sermon titled, And So We Are, As God, As Our Father, this past summer. And I encourage you to go Look it up. We did it on June 19th. Look it up, watch it, and be encouraged. So we pray, remembering that prayer is the heart of a beloved child, reaching out, trusting in, and submitting to the heart of a loving father. And that's who we pray to. But what do we pray for? So Jesus is going to give us actually six requests or petitions that we take to God in prayer. And these six petitions can actually be divided into two categories of what we pray for. God's glory in our lives and God's provision for our lives. So let's jump in. God's glory in our lives. So the first petition is this, hallowed be your name. And there's a reason Jesus gives this to us as the first request we go to with God, because this is the key ask. If we truly prayed this prayer request earnestly, the rest of the prayers, in fact, the rest of our lives fall into place. Hallowed be your name. It's another way of saying it. I love the CSB translation who puts it this way. It says, it's praying, God, your name be honored as holy. Or that God, you would set apart your name as holy in my heart. That the first thing in my life, the thing above all other things, is that my eyes would see you in your holiness. And my lives would be marked to show your holiness, the greatness of your name. So as we see here, hallowed can be translated as holy. And holy means set apart. Specifically set apart in like perfect moral purity an absolute through and through perfect goodness in all things. And this prayer saying, God, captivate me with the holiness of who you are 
to where my life is pointing to and showing the world around me the greatness of your holy name. And I'll be honest, friends, God really challenged me as I was studying this because he, he forced me to kind of ask myself, how much of my life, my energy, my decisions are driven by what people think about me, my reputation, and my ego? This prayer is asking God to make his reputation, his fame, the focus of my life. Hear this, that I wouldn't care what people think about me, only what people think about God because of me. A prayer to God saying, show the world the truth of who you are, Father, through my life, that every part of me would point to your holiness, your holiness in my words, your holiness in my work, your holiness in my schooling, in my relationships, in my sexuality, your holiness in my parenting, your holiness in my finances, your holiness in my home, your holiness in every success and setback, every trial, every triumph, every mountain summit and valley depth, above all things, your holiness in all of my life. It's the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 115. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ's name. And friends, uh, no secret, I'm not there yet. If you've ever talked to me for 30 seconds, you would know that. <laughs> I'm not even close. But that's the point. That's why Jesus tells us to pray this, that each day God would do his transforming work in us, making us more like Jesus until the day we are finally with him in glory face to face. But until that day, we pray, hallowed be your name. Jesus continues saying, your kingdom come, the second petition. So it's the holiness of God's name on display in our lives together. So the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus showing us the difference between man's futile, fleeting kingdoms and the beauty and eternal glory of God's true kingdom. And when Jesus talks about the kingdom, we often need to understand it as the already not yet of the kingdom. And what we mean is the already of God's kingdom is that it is here among us, Come to bear now, anytime a redeemed, reordered new life lives by faith in God, the kingdom of God is here already. So when Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come, the already part of that prayer is saying, God, as I hold your name holy in my heart, reorder my life away from living for this world and its failing kingdoms, but for you and your eternal kingdom. One commentator has said when, when praying this, says, when you pray your kingdom come, we tell our father, I want your kingdom, not mine. Praying your kingdom come is asking God to help us live for his kingdom and not our own here and now today. But it's also a prayer for the not yet. It's a beckoning that God would come and bring the fullness of his future kingdom to earth soon. 
Believers in here, we know that our risen King Jesus, because of his defeat of sin and its curse by suffering on the cross, will one day return, bringing his kingdom with him, and also a fully redeemed and renewed world where the curse of sin and darkness that weighs us down, all the injustice, death and pain, heartache, sadness and fear in our lives, all of that will be fully and forever wiped away, never to return again. And all that will remain is goodness. Love, life, joy, peace, beauty, justice, blessedness, and everything pure, a new creation where sin and its curse are fully and finally gone because of Jesus's victory through the cross. And that kingdom come is where King Jesus rules in perfect power, love, and goodness forever, along with all of us who belong to him. So praying your kingdom come is grabbing all the painful longings in our hearts, the desires for justice in this world, the hatred we have for evil, darkness, and brokenness, the angst we carry for death and pain and suffering to be replaced by life and joy and light, all the homesickness our souls have, crying out and longing for our good and future king. We take every yearning we have for all the wrongs in the world to be made right, and we cry out, King Jesus, your kingdom, come. Bring your kingdom. Bring the redemption of all things we are longing for. Your kingdom come already in my life now and not yet, but King Jesus come soon. Jesus continues saying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this petition is tied very closely to the one before that. This type of prayer your will be done. Commentators have said, this is a dangerous prayer. It's like when we pray to God asking him to give us more patience and more humility. It's dangerous when he answers those with, okay. But this prayer, this part, I think gets to the core of how for so long I got prayer backwards. For so much of my life, I thought prayer as trying to get God to give me what I want, to bend his will to mine. When the heart of prayer is not getting God to bend his will to mine, but asking God to bend my will to his. His will would be my will. His desires would be my desires. His treasures would be my treasures. So I can't help but think of the completely transformed life of the Apostle Paul, if you're familiar with him. Paul went from uh, killing Christians to being killed for being Christian. And it's because he believed in the power of God's love in, in the gospel. Every inch of his life was changed, including his deepest desires. So in fact, when he was under house arrest, imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and he's writing a letter to his beloved church in Philippi, he says this, again, while imprisoned, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, 
but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die, gain. Whether by life or by death. Paul is saying here, whatever God wants to do with me, go for it. Christ is my life. He loved me. He saved me. He took my cross for me. He rose again for me. He continues to love, guide, protect, and provide for me. He is my glory. He is my uh, crown. Christ is all. So Paul says, whether by life or death, Jesus, whatever you want, I'm yours. Your will be done. I've already been delivered. I love how the Puritan Richard um, Alain wrote as he talked about his joyful surrender to God. He wrote this, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. Thy will be done. But friends, here's actually the most amazing thing about Jesus to call us to pray this way. And if you hear nothing else today, remember this. Jesus will never ask us to do something he hasn't done first. He will never ask us to do something he hasn't done first. And what do we mean by that? Well, if you read the Gospels, you know that Jesus, his whole life was about only doing the Father's will. And in fact, he says he didn't even do anything until the Father told him what to do. But as we've seen before, perhaps the greatest example of Jesus was that night when Jesus was betrayed, before he was arrested, he took some of his close disciples with him to the garden to pray. And Jesus, in that moment, is given an image of the fiery furnace of the cross that awaited him. The intensity of God's justice, wrath, and holy condemnation for our sin that was to be absorbed by him on the cross. Seeing the hell he was going to step into for us, God's word tells us this. And he withdrew from them, those disciples, about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, in the fullness of integrity, Praise to the Father what he calls us to pray to the Father. Your will be done. So we see here in this passage in Matthew 6, Jesus tells us that in praying to our Heavenly Father, what we should be praying for, firstly, God's glory in our lives. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But as we see, Jesus is not done instructing us on how to pray. He tells us more of what to pray for, not just God's glory in our lives, but God's provision for our lives, saying, give us this day our daily bread. So we're going to see in this petition um, and the following two that, that 
uh, we're asking God to provide for our needs. And he starts with our physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. So like Milt prayed again, if you're familiar with the story of God, it's hard uh, to think about daily bread without thinking about God providing the daily manna for his children in the book of Exodus. So if you remember, when God brought his people out of uh, the slavery in Egypt and as they wandered the desert, his loving, fatherly compassion provided manna, food for them on a daily basis. And, And every day they took just what they needed. And their heavenly father, was providing for his children back then, and he provides for his children today. But how do we really understand this ask for daily bread in a world of refrigerators and DoorDash? Where can, when we can get food like whenever we want, and we have so much extra, we have to have places to store it. What do we do with this prayer? Well, I think first we need to remember our abundance is not everyone's abundance. There are many places in this world where hunger and food insecurity on a daily basis are still rampant, including our own community. That's why we as a church have been partnering with Generosity Feeds, like we mentioned, to help the children in our own community who are looking for daily bread. And when they pray, crying out to God, give us this daily bread, how does God answer their prayer? Us. We can be the answer to their prayer on how we provide. But in this petition, we also see a heart that sits just in restful trust in God as provider for our physical needs. And in that, I think we see God specifically reminding us of two things in this prayer. One, cultivating a heart in us that turns from trusting our own false self-sufficiency and confesses God alone as our true and only provider. It's remembering that we don't make our hearts beat. We don't make our own blood flow. We don't make our own brains think. I hate to break it to you, but you and I, we are weak, fragile creatures, completely dependent upon God for life. But it's not just our bodies. In this prayer, we deny the sinful pride that we have anything apart from God. Not just our food or health, but everything we have is only from the gracious hand of God. Praying and asking God for daily bread is praying from a humble heart that realizes God alone gives us all things. God can take away all things. And all we have is from him and not from ourselves. And it's trusting his loving heart for us that he will provide for our physical needs. But I think secondly, what we see in there It's not about just trusting God to meet our needs. It's about being so sure that God will meet our needs that we are radically and generously meeting the needs of other people. In other words, we are so confident that our Heavenly Father's ability to meet our needs that we can graciously meet the needs of others. Give us this day our daily bread, a prayer of humble trust that God will provide for our physical needs even as we look to meet the needs of others. Jesus continues, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So here's a quick disclaimer on this part of the prayer, is we're actually not going to give this section the time that it deserves this morning because uh, this part of the prayer is linked to a couple verses following, if you look down in verses 14 and 15. So we're going to do a full sermon on the idea of forgiveness, so that in a world 
that, that just desires justice and full of cancel culture and demonizing anyone who opposes us, what place does forgiveness have in our lives? So tune in in January. So in other words, you don't have to forgive anybody over the holidays. It's good. But a reminder about this position, uh, petition for now, the reminder is that as desperate as our bodies are for food, so are our souls for forgiveness. That it's not just physical needs we have, but spiritual needs. Every time we haven't held God's name as holy the way it deserves. Every time we've lived for our kingdom over God's kingdom. Every time we've said to God, not your will be done, but mine. Every time we've walked around in the pride of self-sufficiency, look at all I've done. And every time we've disregarded the needs of those around us, in other words, every time we've fallen short of the goodness God calls us to, we fall further and further into a sin debt with God. So deep, we can't pay it. We need debt forgiveness. We need someone to pay our debt of sin for us. And praise God, we have that payment in Jesus. The teacher of this very prayer became the debt payer in our place by paying with his very life. Our sin debt fully paid, our souls fully forgiven, our lives completely transformed, our hearts reordered. And Jesus is saying, when you pray, humbly remember your debt and your need for God's forgiveness. And remember God's canceling of your debt in Jesus. And then, Jesus teaches us, one way to know if you've truly received that sin debt forgiveness, look at how willing you are to forgive others when they sin against you, especially when they don't deserve it, because you didn't either. So praying forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors is another way of saying, God, I am desperate for your forgiveness, and as I joyfully receive it, let me be a vessel of forgiveness to others. Because God provides for our lives. He provides for our physical needs and our spiritual needs and forgiveness. But God also provides for our lives and protection from sin. So we see that here in the last petition. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So it makes sense, right? Going back to that first petition, someone who says, uh, I want to hold God's name as holy above anything else then they would be marked by prayers asking God to keep them free from sin. So much so that they would ask God, don't even lead me into situations where I could be tempted to turn from you and dishonor your name. Now, we have to remember for clarity's sake on this, remember that God does not tempt anyone. James makes that clear when he writes this in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if that's true, why would Jesus tell us to pray like this? Because while God does not tempt anyone to sin, at times he does allow to be, us to be led into places of temptation. If you remember, you can go back to Matthew 4. Even Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Satan does the tempting even 
if God allows it. So what do we take from this instruction about Jesus? Well, I think a few things just to remember. One, and this is incredibly countercultural, good and evil are real things. And you and I don't get to decide what is what. <laughs> it's not up to us and what we think is good or evil, our hearts or our emotions or how we process something. We don't determine it. But neither does our government <laughs> or the news or Hollywood or social media. They don't determine what is good and evil. God alone is the authority on what is good and what is evil. And they are real things. One, good and evil are real. Two, sin and Satan are real. We are in a battle, friends, and we need to be proactively pursuing the good and denying the evil in our lives, avoiding temptation when possible, but when tempted, turning away from evil and turning to God. But even as we do that, a third thing to remember, we are not alone in the fight against temptation. We have God in and with us the Holy Spirit. And we see that in this prayer in Matthew 6, but we also see it like when the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, in the fight against temptation, you are not alone. God is with you and God is in you. But the last thing I would say to remember as you fight temptation and pursue goodness, the greatest way that God delivers us is the truth of the gospel. That even if you sin, I should say, even when you sin, when you give into temptation, you can look to and rest in the one who faced every temptation for you without sinning. And that when Jesus took your sin and my sin on the cross, he traded with us, taking our sin upon himself and giving us the record of his perfect victory over temptation and sin. He earned. He gives it to us freely. God provides the protection from sin we need. Good and evil are real. Sin and Satan are real. But God's power in us and Jesus' victory for us is even stronger. So what do we pray for? God's provision in our lives. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we said at the beginning, you can make the argument that this is maybe the most familiar and known passage in the world. But maybe it's really the least known passage in the world. Because it's not just about repeating a list of like memorized words and somehow winning God's favor, but it's showing, Jesus is showing us the prayer of a beloved child reaching out, trusting in, and submitting to the heart of a loving father. It's the prayer of a reordered heart seeking God's glory in and God's provision for our lives. But we have one important question to ask. Who can really, truly pray to God as Father? Only a true child. And who is a true child of God? One that has trusted Christ alone. 
John would put it this way in John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A child of God is someone that believes that the one who's teaching us here how to pray is the very answer to the deepest prayer we have, our need for salvation, for forgiveness to be made enough. All of us have sinned, run away from our Holy Father, lived in selfishness against his good will and good law, and this sin deserves justice. And how can God be both just against our sin while being merciful and forgiving towards us? Only if someone takes justice in our place. If someone pays our debt of sin for us. And that payment, my friends, is Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God. Don't you ever get bored of that. Condemned on the cross, and with him every sin of ours, paid in full by him there. How do we know? How do we know that our sin debt was taken on by Jesus and paid in full by him? Because he not only died, as Kyle reminded us, he rose again. Sin and death had no power over him because he canceled them. That's the cancel culture we're about. Our sin and death has been canceled by Jesus. I love how one, I uh, actually heard it in a, a rapper put it. He said, the resurrection means the check cleared. Debt paid. Our sin and all its curse and power over us, gone. Because Jesus rose again. And if we believe, if we receive that truth, not only are we given a new life of a new forgiveness, we're given a citizenship into a new kingdom, Jesus's kingdom, the already and the not yet, We've been given a new family with redeemed brothers and sisters from every tribe and nation, all made one and all made new in Christ. And all of us, because of Jesus, are now adopted into a new family, the forever family of God with God as our Father. And how do we get all this? By believing, by trusting by turning from trusting in ourselves and our salvation in ourselves and turning our salvation and trust to Christ alone. His life for us, his death in our place, his victorious resurrection, he is our hope, he is our life. And through faith in him alone can we become children of God with God as our heavenly father. So I ask you, can you honestly call God your father today? Did that describe you? Have you confessed and believed in your need for forgiveness? Have you received the gift of grace that only the debt counselor, Jesus, can provide? You can receive it right now. Just trust and believe. And by believing, you can pray to our Heavenly Father from a new reordered heart for his glory in your life, and for his provision for your life. Bow with me as I close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.